to uh, start a series today on Corinthians. I'm very excited about this because um, you don't get a, a lot of chance to hear me teach in the Bible College because you're taking a lot of different classes from professors. So I thought that I would take our chapel as a time of uh, teaching. And if the Lord gives me a word, then I'll interrupt the series and go back to the teaching. Uh, Ellie, just asking that, uh, would it help if I move over a little bit too? Good, thank you. And uh, just asking that you would make a series file in our um, in our sermon player so the Corinthians can be found for people in the church who want to use it as well. Let's look uh, at 1 Corinthians. Turn there with me, please. I want to give you some background knowledge on Corinthians. It's a epistle written by Paul. It's one of the most attested to epistles of Paul, meaning that there is actually no argument, even by secular non-Christian scholars, to the authorship of Paul. So this is 100% acknowledged as a Pauline letter, even without any controversy. Now, most of us here, we don't listen to liberal scholars anyway, but uh, it's, it's, it, is, it is interesting to hear what they have to say about different letters and, and so on and so forth. But this one is uncontested, even by their accounts. What's interesting about that, having done our debate last uh, yesterday, last Sunday with a Muslim, is that he was trying to accuse Paul of different uh, false doctrines and changing the Christian church. And here in Corinthians, in chapter 15, you see another hymn, like I showed you in Philippians 2, and it's not the Corpus Christi, that's the, the communion. Uh, Sam Shimon corrected me, he was listening to the debate. It's the Carmen Christi, uh, the, heart, the hymn of Christ, uh, Philippians 2. But as I was sharing with you in Philippians, these are hymns that predate Paul, he actually puts them in his letters, and you can see it when you go to Philippians chapter 15. He says, I have received this, and I have given it to you, and as I received it, you should believe it. And it talks about the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ being seen by 500 witnesses and among Peter and the apostles. Now, why is and then he ascended to heaven? Why is this important, just hacking off the, from yesterday's debate, is that Paul has a hymn that predates his own conversion that speaks of the death, burial, and resurrection, and even names Peter. So Paul wasn't teaching a different type of Christianity. Paul himself was fully in line with the Christians of that day. I don't know if that's exciting for you, but that's like the smoking gun of theology for me when somebody says something as ignorant as the Muslim was saying that uh, Paul had changed Christianity. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Now, here's some background on Corinth. Corinth was a port city. It was established by the Romans, uh, excuse me, established by the Greeks, had a defeat militarily by the Romans and reestablished again as a Roman colony. It was known for being by the water, so it was a port city and had access to the ocean and to the seas from there, and uh, it had a lot of commerce, so it was a rich city. It was a metropolitan city. Paul had traveled there on his second missionary journey, and during that time, he had met some of the people that you now know, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. He met them while he was there. Paul did tent making while he was there. Um, this was the place where Paul spent uh, quite a few months loving on the people and building one of his greatest churches there. And as well, when he writes this letter, he's on his third missionary journey, and he's writing to them to get rid of some of the problems that they're facing. And he's in Ephesus at the time of writing the letter. And Ephesus was the place that he spent the most amount of time in one city. 
So he loves Corinth. He's taking time to write to them. Some of the themes that you're going to learn here in the book of Corinthians, which is going to be awesome, is you're going to learn about uh, the unity of the body of Christ, uh, how we are to be unified and not be divided against each other. You're going to learn today in chapter 1, some say, uh, I'm of Peter. One says, I'm of Apollos. One says, I'm of Paul. And he's going to speak against that. So you're going to learn about the unity of Christ. You're going to learn about sexual purity. Sexual purity is discussed here. He actually says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to kick somebody out of the church because of how terrible their immorality was and that they weren't even willing to repent. You're going to learn about marriage and how important marriage is in, in the book of Corinthians. You're also going to learn about how to have issues of the conscience. Uh, and these are things that each Christian can decide between himself and God. The issue that is brought up here is uh, food sacrifice to idols and eating food that uh, is sold in the markets where they've already sacrificed it to an idol. And this would be similar to us going to a Chinese restaurant. I don't know if you've ever seen the Buddha there. And a plate of food sitting in front of the Buddha. The Buddha they've offered their food in that restaurant that day to Buddha. And the question is, can we eat there? Well, when you live in a place like India in modern times or in past times in Rome, if you don't eat there, you're going to starve pretty quick because there's not a lot of places to go. And if you have to go to the Jewish deli, you might have to travel quite a ways. And so he talks about matters of the conscience. Also, one of our favorite passages in Corinthians you're going to learn about is chapter 12, spiritual gifts, shikaboomba. Come on. And just to let you guys know, because you're looking at me like, is he going to teach? Yes, this is not going to be uh, shouting and hollering, preaching, unless I have a message to do that with. So I'm going to do this very much as I do the Hebrews class on Thursday, once again, to, to give you guys some good teaching. And I know many of you are graduating this year, it's third years, and uh, some of you only maybe had one class with me. And that's okay. 40 classes, one with me, that's pretty good. Amen. you got 39 other teachers in your life now. But I was kind of feeling in a, in a godly way, a little jealousy like Paul said. I'm like, Man, I want to sow some more seed into them as a teacher before we, you know, graduate you guys. So that's one of the reasons. We also learn about women in the ministry here. We see how Paul had to deal with women. He actually tells them uh, to be quiet at certain times, not to do anything in the church, and to ask their uh, husbands questions at home. So you'll learn about that and why that was there. And then at the end, you'll learn about uh, the resurrection of Christ, chapter 15 and onward, where we were just talking about how Paul takes the hymn of the church, puts it into modern day, um, the hymn of the church puts it into his modern perspective and teaches them how to appreciate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, communion, and all of those things. And then lastly, the love that he has for God's people. You're going to get a real taste at the end when he starts to say goodbye to them that there are a lot of people that he loves in Corinth. And so even starting the letter, it's good to know that he starts to mention names. You know, right at the beginning he mentions Chloe and so forth. And you're going to learn really at the end, and you know, he kicks out somebody in chapter 5, but you're going to see at the end that he really loves these people. This was a church that he had planted, like I said, on his second missionary journey. He's writing this from Ephesus on his third journey, and he's correcting some problems. And that's how we get into the book of Corinthians. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. Amen. Let's do 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 3. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sothosthenes. Everybody say Sothosthenes. Sothosthenes. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be holy, together with those everywhere who call on the name of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Well, the first thing that you see here is Paul. Uh, he's telling you that he is called to be an apostle. The Greek word apostle is apostolion, and apostolion is someone sent, someone sent up. So Paul is saying he is called, God has called him to be sent out to be an apostle. Who is he representing? He is representing Christ Jesus. When Christ is appearing before the name of Jesus, he's giving Jesus the title, the anointed one, Jesus. So it would read uh, in our language, without taking the word Christ to understand the meaning, he would be saying, I am Paul, I am sent out by the anointed one, Jesus. Does everybody understand that? So Christ, Messiah, same thing, meaning the anointed one. And we see that Paul starts off his letter this way, and what this does is now establish his authority. He's telling them why I have permission to now teach you the things that I do. When you learn about Paul, he didn't try to take authority over churches that were not his. The only other time you see him write to a, a church or a group of people that are not under his direct apostolic, apostolic, apostolic ship, is that, am I saying that right? I just, just slipped my brain. Apostleship, thank you, thank you, just to help the professor today. The apostleship is the book of Romans because Romans was started by believers from Pentecost going back to their hometown on fire for Jesus, and they themselves never had a leader. So when Paul writes to them, he says, I know you guys are without a leader. God has sent me to be your covering. Is everybody tracking with me? It's very important to know that because you never see Paul trying to write Peter's people saying, I am your apostle, now listen to me and obey. You, you, are you listening? This is very important. When Paul establishes his authority, he is saying, these are the people God has given me. I am the one sent to you. I am the apostle, the sent out one by the anointed Jesus to you. By whose will? The will of God. And then he says, and our brother Sothosthenes. Now, what you see right here, is when Christ Jesus is separated from the word God. We know that Jesus Christ is God. You know, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Right? Everybody's saying the word was God. Now, you all are paying attention. We're still going to have a good class. Amen? Can't be. I said amen? See, that's not a good way to start it off when the amen doesn't get an amen. Amen? Okay, so pay attention. This is for you to grow. This is not for you to be bored. And if all you like is hype preaching, then you yourself are an immature Christian, okay? You should be able to handle teaching because I cannot be hype and crazy and cover all the information I need here, all right? Amen? Okay, when you see God, theos in the Greek, separated from Christ Jesus, this is the way of referring to the Father in Paul's writings. It's not saying that Jesus Christ is not God. But when you see God just referred to by itself as the title God and Jesus Christ is in the mix, that is always referring to God the Father. How do I know that? You just go down to the next few verses and you see it again. And he clarifies it. Verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father. So when he doesn't have the tagline there, our Father, God is still referring to the Father. When Jesus is called our great God and Savior, like in Titus, is it the same as being called the person of the Father? No. When Jesus is referred to as God, it is not the person of the Father. He is being called God in his divine nature. Let me give you another place to understand this clearly. In John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. Okay, We know this being the Son of God, the Logos in the Greek. The, the Word in the beginning was there. And the word was with God. 
Okay, now you know this because we've taught you this before. The Greek word with, pros, means facing God. So the word is literally facing God. Then the next part, and the word was God. Now some people who deny the Trinity, who believe in Unitarianism, and they believe that there's only one person of God. God is the Father, Son, and the Spirit in one person. Like how I am a father, but I am a son to my father, and I am a husband to my wife. I can be three types of people, but I am still one individual person. Do you understand? So they say at times God puts on the hat of the father, and he acts like a father. Then he acts as the son, and he becomes our sacrifice. Then he acts as the Holy Spirit, and he's here with us. That is called Unitarianism. That is not what we are. Trinitarians are people that believe that God is simultaneously the Father and the Son simultaneously and then simultaneously the Spirit. And these three are one divine being and yet simultaneously three separate persons. Are you listening? Now, going on to back to John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, pros, facing God, and the Word was God. They say, see, the Word is the Father. See, Unitarians, you see how they make that real easy distinction? And the Word was the Father, because God means the Father. Are you all listening? Do you see how quickly false doctrine enters the church? Because I just told you, when God is not labeled and it's with Jesus, it means the Father, right? And so now the Word is Father. Is that true? No. Now, why is that not true? And this is where it gets into a little bit more technical Greek, and it's called the, predi it's called the uh, predicate nominative. And the Jehovah Witnesses get off into something called the, uh, the lack of article. And they try to say because the article is not before theos, that it should say in the beginning... Uh, and you, this may help you out here. John 1.1 1, 1 is broken into three sections. John 1.1 uh, 1, 1 is, is A, B, and C. In the beginning was the Word. Think of that as A. The Word was with God, B. And the Word was with God, C. So John 1.C, the Jehovah Witnesses say, because theos there does not have the whole, the article, whole theos, as it does in part B, because it says, and the Word was with God. It says, and the Word was with ha-theos, with the God. They say because it doesn't have the article there, that now it should be, and the Word was a God. It wasn't the God. Are you all tracking with me here? So the Jehovah Witnesses want to say that Jesus is just a God. The Unitarians say that Jesus is the Father, but what is the true Trinitarian nature here? The Trinitarian nature is, is that Jesus is God in the sense that God is a divine being, omnipresent, all-powerful, all-knowing. Are you guys with me? So it says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word is there in the beginning. He's with, facing God, but God specifically, whole theos right there in part B. Who is the God he is facing? Who is he facing? The Father. He's not facing himself. He's not looking in a mirror. Who is he facing? The Father. But now in C, when it says, and the Word was God, is it saying the Word is the Father? No. What it's saying is the Word is fully divine as the Father is divine. Now, how do we see that? Just look at it now since I've, taught, I've showed you so much about it. Just go to John 1.1 1, 1 because it's so important for you to understand the Trinity in, in Paul's statements like this. 
John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Does everybody see that? Now go on down to verse 18, and you'll see the explanation. Always interpret Scripture with Scripture. Once you start going to other Scriptures outside of the passage, you've lost the point. Everything should be interpreted within the passage itself. Are you, all, are you tracking with me? Amen? Now look at it, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only, who is at what? The Father's side has made him known. So back to John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Who was he with? Whose side was he at? The Father's side. But is the Father God? Yes. Don't get confused. Is the Father God? Whose side is he at? God the Father. But then in John 1c... The Word is God. Is He the Father? No, He is God the Son. There is God the Father. There is God the Son. That's exactly what it says in John 1.18. It says, no one has ever seen God, referring to John 1b, the one that the Word faces. No one has seen the Father. No one has seen Him. But God the one and only, John 1c, the Logos is God, that God we have seen. And where has he been? He's been at the Father's side. He has made the Father now known unto us. So when you go back to 1 Corinthians, and listen to the tape if you're thinking that I'm playing a mind trick with you, but this is called good theology, amen? When you go to chapter 1 of, of, of Corinthians, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Who is God referring to there? The Father. So he's called by the Son to be an apostle for the will of the Father. You all tracking with me here? Okay, now you understand the first verse. You all ready? We haven't even got to Sethosthenes. Let's go to Sethosthenes. And here is a little bit about him that it's good to know. So Sothenes, he was a... Jewish rabbi who was converted to Christianity by the ministry of Paul, and uh, you can learn a little bit about him right here in, um, let me get to my my part here right about him. You can learn about him in Acts. Uh, if somebody finds it before me, you can shout it out. Acts chapter 18. He was a synagogue ruler. If you remember when Paul was in his travels to, to Corinth, the, the, uh, the Jews persecuted the people around him, and when Paul wouldn't come out, they beat one of the Jewish rulers. Does everybody remember that? Don't lie if you don't. Just say, just say help me, Jesus. Okay, come on. Look at uh, Acts 18, verse 14. Just as about... Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, if you were Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. This is the ruler there uh, in Corinth. But since it involves questions about your words, names, and, and our own law, your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he ejected them from the court. But then they all turned on Sothosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court, but Gallio showed no concern whatever. Did you ever wonder why 
all of a sudden they're mad at Paul, and then they turn on this dude, Sothosthenes, and start beating him up in Acts? Well, now you know why. He was a synagogue ruler that was converted to Christianity, and when they tried to bring the Christians before the Roman council, the Roman council didn't want anything to do with it, and then when they got angry with the Roman council, instead of taking it out on the Roman council, they took one of their own synagogue rulers and beat him up. But this brother who was suffering persecution, he was still with Paul, serving the Lord. Isn't that awesome? So Paul was called to be an apostolion, sent out by Christ Jesus, the anointed one, by the will of God the Father. Sothosthenes, the brother, is still with them. Now verse 2, the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Here you see the name Church of God being the title Ecclesia of Theos. Uh, Ecclesia in the Greek meaning church, called out ones, you know, and, and th this is the title for the church. You know, the Church of God stole it from us, so we can't use it now. But it was the term that Paul used to talk about the gathering together of the saints. And it was always the church of God in the city. So here it's the church of God in Corinth. We would be the church of God in, okay, about four of you got it. Let's say it again. The church of God in, I feel sorry for your professors. You guys are a boring class. You know what I'm saying? I feel sorry for them, man. I wish I had an exciting class. Nancy, can you help them out? Maybe on Sunday, uh, I mean, um, Monday mornings, tell them to be ready for our, our chapels. Amen. Because, you know, if this is how you guys with your professors, I feel sorry for them, man. You guys got to get excited. We would be the church of God in? There you go. To those who are sanctified, what does the word sanctified mean? It means to be set apart, to be made holy. So those who are set apart in Christ Jesus. There he says that title again, the anointed one, Jesus. So he's talking to people that are called out that are in the church, and that they are called to be separated from sin and called to be presently holy. And we just simply know the word holy and sanctified are almost sister words in this context. Being sanctified is to be made holy. So the process of sanctification makes you holy. The way you could look at it is like a washing machine. It would be like saying God wants you to be Clean from your dirt in the washing machine of your sin so that you can be presented pristine as a white T-shirt to the community. So God is saying, uh, Paul is saying through the process, the washing of sanctification, the spirit getting the junk out, you are then made holy. Does everybody get that? Amen. Together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So is the book of Corinthians, by this definition, just for the Corinthians, or is it for all people who call on the name of the Lord? There you go. So by the definition of him writing the letter, it is for us. Now, does he have to say that every time? No, because we believe all Scripture is, is inspired by God, is useful for teaching and preaching, rebuking, correcting, all of that. But right here you could just see the intent of Paul. He's saying this is not just for you guys, but it's for all those who are called to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how was church in those days? What did it look like if you were to go to the church of God in Corinth? Well, you probably would have showed up at somebody's house. You're going to see some of these people named in, in, uh, later on here in chapter 1. You would have showed up. You wouldn't have had a Bible. 
it, uh, number one, it was illegal, and there was no way of printing them and having them in your hands. So you would show up to a house, what we call life groups today. Uh, there would be chairs there. They, they were not, as the Asian culture, sitting on the floor. Sometimes they did. The Last Supper probably might have been on the floor, uh, him leaning against Jesus' chest. But there was chairs, so you would sit on chairs, not couches, chairs, some on the floor maybe. You would sing a few hymns. You would take communion. You would pray. And then the house leader would tell you whatever they knew from what they had learned from the apostles. They may have been around the apostles and taken the letters and copied them. They may have gotten this Corinthian letter, a copy of it, and that was probably all they had in their house. If they had traveled around with Luke or uh, with Paul, they might have heard Luke's gospel and they might have wrote it down and they might have heard some stories about Jesus, but most of it was already from their memory. The government of their church would have been directly under their elder or the apostle. If the apostles had set up their elders, then there would be elders, which we now call bishops, that would be over multiple home churches or just simply over one. So it could have been multiple or one. If there were not elders yet appointed, then it would just be the apostle overseeing the gathering together of the brothers. By the time you get to the more sophisticated church, by the time Paul is writing to Timothy in Ephesus, a place he had been for two years, the way it worked like this. Paul was an apostle, and he spoke to a leader like Timothy who oversaw all the churches of the city of Ephesus. Paul then, like a bishop, had many elders that were over him, and elders were living in their homes having churches, and those elders in their homes would have deacons that would assist them in preaching the gospel. So the way we look at it in our church is apostolic elders like Paul establishing the order because they eventually started calling themselves by elders, and you can go into Third John and realize that they stopped calling themselves just by their gifts, a, prof, a prophet, apostles, and teachers. They start saying they're elders, and you'll see that in Third John. He's one of the last letters to be written, and Second Peter's one of the last letters to be written, and he says, I as a fellow elder among you beseech you because they knew that term was being implemented. So we try to say it in our church. We're not the only ones. It's just our way of looking at it. Is the apostle the one starting the church is like the apostolic elder? The one like Timothy who is overseeing all the other elders is a pastoral elder. The governing elders are the ones that are in their homes having the meetings and teachings, and then the deacons are assisting them. That's as close to a model as I can see how they went to church at that point. So once again, when you showed up to that church, if it was a sophisticated church that had been well taught and trained, you would have an elder overseeing it with maybe other elders helping him and a deacon, or it might have just been a bunch of disciples who were directly under the apostle and none of them had been appointed elders or deacons yet. Are you listening? You wouldn't have had the written word of God because the written word of God was coming to you. You definitely couldn't have had a Torah and an Old Testament. These things were considered sacred. Most of you wouldn't have been able to speak Hebrew, wouldn't have understood it, and the Septuagint in Greek was guarded very closely by the Hebrews. They didn't give it out to people. You couldn't go to the bookstore and grab it. So that's what church would have been like, but I can tell you something that you would have seen in that church you probably don't see very much of today. You would have seen miracles. You would have seen people raised from the dead. You would have seen spiritual gifts happening, and you also would have seen God's judgment upon sin, people dying in the church. As you find out later in Corinthians, people were getting sick, because they took communion every service, and some were taking it with impure hearts, and sicknesses were actually coming upon them. So imagine this letter saying to you, you know why some of you have leukemia and what you have? It's because you've been taking communion with the wrong heart. So that's how powerful God's presence was in these meetings. He says that uh, we call on Jesus Christ as our Lord, 
This is the, the salvation call. And he says this again in Romans, which is his uh, mountaintop of theology when Paul says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you shall be saved. That uh, is, has always been his theology, and this is where it comes out right here. You're called to be holy with those who call on the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ, and their Lord and ours. Verse 3, grace and peace. Grace being kairos, the unmerited favor of God, undeserved blessings of God, peace, irene, the calm without storm blessing of God. So he is saying, grace, may, may God give you undeserved blessing and a calmness, a, 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 a tranquility in the midst of life from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And there you see the full title that Paul loves to refer Jesus as, Lord, Kyrios in the Greek, Master, Jesus, Yahshua in the Hebrew, our God saves, Christ, the Anointed One. So when he would say the Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying your Master, Jehovah, who saves with the anointing. That is what he is saying to the people of that day. He say, I'm writing to you on behalf of God, our Father, and Father just simply means Father, in, in uh, Greek, but through the master, the lordship of Yahweh who saves with the power of the anointing. That's what he was saying right there. Isn't that awesome, the first three verses of the, the, the book? And let's keep going on. Now he begins to give thanksgiving to God, verses 4 through 9. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking, and all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift. You eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will, be kept, uh, he will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord is faithful. What's the first thing that you see there, verse 4, is that I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. We already know what grace means. We know what Christ Jesus means. And we know who God is. He's saying, I thank the Father. But what is the importance that you need to see here? It's that word always. Always. As a pastor now of quite a bit of people in our church, overseeing 200 churches around the world, I can now begin to understand what always is like. I will be in, in the most uh, peculiar of places, showers, getting ready in the morning, uh, eating meals, and God will just place people on my heart. And when they come to my heart, maybe you've already sensed this in ministry, but I can share from uh, the 15 years of experience that I've had, is when they come into my heart, the first thing that I have is a sense of thanksgiving. And as often as I can remember to do so, I was, I'm not as good as Paul, but as often as I can do so, I thank the Lord for you. I thank the Lord for them. So I'll be eating a meal, the thought of India, one of the churches, you know, Brother Barnabas, uh, one of our churches out there, uh, these men that are renamed when they're baptized from their pagan names to Christian names, Sibaji, Sarthi, one of them will pop into my mind. And just in my spirit, I'll just say, thank you, Lord, for them. Thank you, Lord. Maybe one of you will come into my mind, uh, you know, some of the things God's doing in your life, and I'll just see you, and I'll just thank the Lord for you. I believe Paul was, that's what he meant. It didn't mean he was always just in a state of prayer. I thank God for the Corinthians. I thank God for the Corinthians, because I always thank God for the Corinthians. 
I believe when he says, I always thank God for you, what he's saying is, as often as I think of you, the moment that thought is coming, I'm thanking God for you. And what is he thanking God for? That keras, that grace, those undeserved merited favors and blessings that are being poured upon these believers. He loved them. Verse 5, for in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking, in all your knowledge. You can see here this is like the sandwich technique of a rebuke. He's going to give them a little bit of bread and fluff with the meat in the middle, with a little bit of bread and fluff at the beginning. He's fluffing them up because he's saying, you guys have every spiritual gift. You're growing in knowledge. But he's about ready to start calling them fools and rebuking them and kicking them out the church. He's going to start telling them to put their spiritual gifts in order. He's going to say they're ignorant and what they're doing with spiritual gifts. But at the beginning right here, he's saying, guys, you've been enriched in every way. God has blessed you. Let's not forget that. Let's remind each other of that. And that should remind us that even in our times of correction and rebuke, we should always encourage, just like we did with our brother today, doing it with others, reminding them that you know what? God has blessed you in every way. You have been saved. You've been growing in how you're talking, speaking, how you talk, and what you know. You've been growing in that. And then he takes credit for it, but that's okay because he gives, Paul ends up giving all credit to God. Whenever he says, follow me, why is it good to follow Paul? Because Paul is following Christ. When he says, because our testimony about Christ is confirmed in you, why is he saying that they are now growing in knowledge and speaking because of their testimony? Because it was Christ that gave them the power to say that testimony. But, but it's nothing wrong giving credit and honor to where honor is due. Paul also taught that. So he's saying, we can see that you're growing in how you're talking and what you're knowing because you've been listening to us. Our testimony about Christ, the anointed one, has been confirmed in you. Verse 7, therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. And he's saying that every spiritual gift you can have, the nine of them, he's about ready to list in chapter 12. He goes, you got them all right now. Gift of prophecy, you're not lacking in it. Gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues, you're not lacking in it. You have it. Now, when we get into chapter 12, we'll talk about the different ideas of spiritual gifts and how some have believed they've passed away. Cessationism, who says, you know, and this is mostly from uh, non-spirit-filled places, they say there's no more gifts and it's passed away, it's ceased. But Paul, of course, didn't believe that because he's saying these people had it and they weren't lacking any gift. And so if it ceased, and they claim it ceased when the apostles died, what happened to those poor Corinthians? They're speaking in tongues, and all of a sudden John the apostle dies, and it's like, you know, I can't speak in tongues anymore. What happened? Oh, the last apostle died, and the gifts have gone back to heaven. Come on, somebody. He says at this point, you don't lack any spiritual gift. Shouldn't that be said of every church? Shouldn't every church be growing in knowledge and what they say? And shouldn't every church be filled to the fullness of God's spiritual gifts? And, and shouldn't we all be waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed? Um, the sense revealed is that we know who he is, but the world doesn't yet know who he is. And there are still the enemies of God, Satan, and these fallen angels who have not yet had to be submitted once and for all, placed in judgment. So we're waiting, as they were waiting, for it still to be fulfilled where Jesus is revealed from heaven, coming upon this earth, judging all of the nations. And as a star passes from one side to the other, uh, you know, as the, as, as the stars are in the sky and lightning comes down, the whole world will see who he is. Amen. 
Verse 8, he will keep you strong to the end. So who is going to keep the Christian strong to the end of Jesus, to the time Jesus Christ comes? Jesus will. As he said before in Philippians, I believe he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete him to the day of Jesus Christ. So that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he wants us to be strong, increased in power. Why? So that we can become just another televangelist, so that we can just impress people with our spiritual gifts and be like Chloe on 1900 Psychic Hotline? No, so that we may be blameless. The greatest evidence that you have the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the power, strength of God in you is by the life you lead, following God's commands, living holy. Now, does blameless mean that we have never sinned since the day we met Christ? No. We know that we have sinned as knowing Christ, and we may sin continuing to know Christ. But as you study First John and as you go through the letter of Paul himself, he is teaching that all sin must be repented of. At times, the consequences, discipline must be given, and restoration and a changed life must come. So what is the proof of true salvation and sanctification? It is transformation. What is the proof that you have salvation? Is that you have transformation. What is the proof that there is inward sanctification? Is that there is outward transformation. It might put a smile on Sue Ellen's face this afternoon. Praise God. It says you don't lack any gift. God's going to keep you strong until Jesus comes back. Why? Because he wants you to be blameless until that day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You learn about the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, and you know what's so awesome? Is that now in the New Testament, the day of the Lord is substituted now with the day of Jesus. Does that not show us that in the Old Testament, what they were calling the day of the Lord, what they were putting their hopes towards, now we see as the very day of Jesus. Where can you see this in the Old Testament? Daniel chapter 7 spoke about it yesterday. The Ancient of Days is in the vision. Daniel then sees the Son of Man come to him. He receives all power and dominion. All the nations worship and serve him. What day does that happen? Oh, that's the day of the Lord. Daniel said, I'm looking forward to the day of the Lord. In the New Testament, whose day is the day of the Lord? It's Jesus' day, riding on a white horse, having a sword upon his side, the word of God dripping with blood. Do you understand on the day of the Lord, he will slaughter a billion people. The blood will be as high as a horse's head, as far as 140 miles, which is from here to Rockford. That is high as, as the blood will be. It will be an ocean of blood. The Bible says his horse will be in it, his robe will be dipped in it, and his sword will be in it. He will conquer the nations. But on that day when people are crying out for the rocks to cover them, but they cannot be hid, he binds up Satan, throws them into the pit, of the abyss on that day Thessalonians says when they are in terror the people of God will be shining as the noonday sun because they have chosen the path of holiness they will be with the Lord and those who are upon the earth will be changed in a moment and forever rule as kings and priests with God so what makes them feel terrified is the day we get glorified the day that brings them to the point where they say, I'm terrified, we say, no, we're going to be glorified on the day Jesus Christ comes back. And then he says, God, who has called you into fellowship with his son. Oh, now it makes perfect sense. The father has a son, 
So therefore, God referring to in that place is who? The Father. Man, well, we almost got it. We were so close, guys, to ending this a better way than we started, but y'all weren't, weren't paying attention. God, in verse 9, if he has a son, must be referring to who? Thank you. Let's try to do that next week. Amen. Right at the beginning. God must be the Father here because it says he has his son, Jesus Christ. Does that take away Jesus from being God because God's not put on his name? No. It's just helping us understand that the Jews referred to God always as their Father and always referred to the Father as their God. But God who called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. What is the key word that we see right there? Fellowship. Shipping with the fellow is literally what it means. You're on a ship with your fellow. You are fellowshipping with Jesus. How do you go through life? On Jesus' ship. Who is with you in the ship of the storms that you face? Jesus is with you. So whether you go through the storms or through the calm seas, whether it's like the winds are battering at your side or whether you're wakeboarding at the back of the ship having the best time of your life, God says Jesus is with you. Your fellowship is with him, and he is faithful. When you jump overboard and say, I'm tired of living holy, I don't want a blameless life, I want to go swim with the sharks, I want to spend a night in the belly of the whale, Jesus is still waiting on the ship for you to cry out for help. And when Jonah did, God spit him out. When, when Peter fell into the water, Jesus pulled him up. Share life with Jesus. That's what he's telling them. Share your life with Jesus because he's faithful. Even though your mother and father forsake you, he'll never forsake you. Even the people we love the most, our very own children to our own parents, can do things in life to hurt us, let us down because they are not always perfect. They're not always 100% faithful to the things they promise. But God is promising us, and Paul said it to the Corinthian church, God, who called you into fellowship, to spend life with Jesus, oh, yeah, he's faithful. Oh, yeah, he doesn't give up on you. He'll be there when everybody else leaves. He'll be there in times that you even want to leave. He still won't deny himself even if you're denying him. He'll be there. How many want to share life with Jesus? Amen. Amen. Let's keep going. Verses 10 and onward. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you, so that you may be perfectly uni uh, united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household, have informed me there's quarrels among you. I guess Chloe was a tattletale. Or she was a good servant of the Lord. Which one do you think she was, a tattletale or a good servant of the Lord? Amen. So she goes back to Paul and she says, there's some fighting going on here, Paul. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another one says, I follow Apollos. Another one says, I follow Cephas. That's the Aramaic name for Peter. Still another, the spiritual ones, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So none of you can say you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, 
lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Well, what do you see here is that now Paul begins to get personal. He talks about divisions in the church. How sad could this be? In the time of the apostles, they were already dividing among themselves. So if you see a church that deals with division, is that something odd? Is that something that hasn't been around when you see people in a church fighting? No, it actually goes back to the time of Paul. Now, does that make it right? Absolutely not. It's a terrible thing to do. But these divisions have always been with us. Sometimes I've heard people in the church, even when people have left Metro Praise, they say, well, something must be wrong at that church. People leave there. Or there's a disagreement between two elders there. There must be something wrong. If that was true, then Paul had something wrong in his ministry. Because if you read all of Paul's letters, even the most smallest one, Philemon, you always find that people are not getting along. What was the problem with Philemon? Onesimus, the lost slave, he got in a fight with his master. Basically another way of having a job. This was not slavery as what we would see in South in America in the South. No, Onesimus was the slave of Philemon. He doesn't get along. He quits his job and runs away. Paul says, hey, guess who I got over here? Onesimus, will you take him back, forgive him of what he's done? And guess what Onesimus became later on in the church? He became a great deacon that was acknowledged by the church father, Ignatius. If you ever want to study about redemption and the love of God and what he'll do through you, study the life of Onesimus. And so whether it's the smallest letter of Paul in Philemon or whether it's this biggest letter, Corinthians, with all of the amount of information, Corinthians is the biggest, uh, second to Romans, here you have a problem. Like one pastor said, Pastoring would be awesome if it wasn't for the people. I'm going to say that again. Like a pastor once said, pastoring would be awesome if it wasn't for the people. It's the people that make pastoring hard, isn't it? If they would just do what we told them, it would be so much easier. If SUM students would just do what we ask them to do. Perfect. Do your discussion boards. Hand in your research papers on time. Do your test. At this point, your silence doesn't bother me. I just know you're convicted. Oh, life would be so much easier if we would all just listen to the leadership, wouldn't it? And now some of you, you've probably found yourself in the youth ministry, in the life group, doing some discipleship, and you're you're, you're starting to rebuke, you're starting to say something, and then right before you say it, you say, Pastor Joe would say this. What's wrong with me? He he actually told me this very thing. Anyways, now let me tell you. And you're wondering now why the words come into your mind. These things you're wanting to give others, the reason why is, is because you now will see that people don't do what you ask them to do. If Paul could not get people all on the same page without rebuking and correcting and without his leaders coming to him and saying, Paul, I don't think you see what's going on behind your back, how much more will you and I have trouble managing the church of God? And he begins to write to them, and he says, Brothers, Adalfoy, brothers, he calls them by this close term, which you now understand that he considers them to be a part of the family of God. He says, I appeal to you. He is speaking to them like a lawyer and as if 
They were on the witness stand, and God is the judge. He's saying, I appeal to you. Do the right thing before the judge. Do the right thing. He is appealing to them as a lawyer. He calls them the family, the brothers, and he now puts the authority. We don't even understand what he is saying. He's saying, I appeal to you, my family, in the name of our master, the Jehovah who saves by the anointing. Let all of you agree with one another. Let there be no divisions among you. And may you be perfectly united in mind and thought. What are the three things he's asking? That they would agree, that there would be no divisions, and that they would be perfectly united. Shouldn't that be the cry of the church today? That whenever we see things that are not in agreement, we would expose it. In our heart, when we don't agree, that we would repent. You say, Pastor, I feel like I don't have a voice then. I feel like, you know, I'm being drowned out. I feel like it's not fair. Listen to me. Trust your heart to God, but place your agreement with your leadership. If your heart is not at rest with what the leadership is doing, God is able to take vengeance for you. If the leadership is abusing you, God is able to defend you. Even if your heart is not at rest, still be in agreement with the leadership and with one another. And no divisions. We know what it means to divide. Multiply means to increase rapidly. Divide means to decrease rapidly, to split apart. Let there be no divisions among you. And be perfectly united in mind and thought. Shouldn't we all agree on what happened at the debate uh, Sunday? If you would say, I think you lost the debate, Pastor, then you're not perfectly united with us. If you are always the one that sticks out, it's not that you're trying to be unique, but you're not in mind with us. You're not understanding you can be causing division with us. Once again, but I got a different opinion. I want to make it known. This is not the place. The church is not the place for all of us to have an opinion. The church is a place for us to submit our mind to what is going on and to humble ourselves. But what about the things I don't feel right about? Most of the time it's your flesh and it's good you don't feel right because God is crucifying that flesh. But even if you feel that you are wronged on the inside, maybe it's God showing you some things that are not right. He'll never do it through rebellion. It will be done through others speaking to leaders, through Paul coming and addressing the issues, or through something happening through a divine judgment. But you being rebellious will never bring about the right thing. The Bible says that will never lead to godliness. Once again now, verse 11, he says, My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Well, who is this awesome sister Chloe that we just hear about? Chloe is a Christian that's serving the Lord here in the house of God. She was somebody that uh, brought people to Ephesus with uh, Paul. So she is saying from Ephesus, I hear what they're doing in Corinth. Isn't it something that uh, from Corinth they go to Chloe, then to Paul. I think that that's normally how it works. Most people are too afraid to go directly to the leader, so they go to a friend of the leader, and that's who Chloe was. And how they believe that Chloe was able to have such good connections from Ephesus to Corinth was that she had a wealthy business and that she must have had at the port city employees. 
that were a part of Paul's campus in Corinth. So she was a connecting point between the campus in Corinth and the campus of Ephesus because of the employees that worked for her. And she says, Paul, there's divisions among them. They're not unified and that they're not in agreement. And what was their agreement over? I mean, really, was it that bad? Well, let's listen to it. Their agree- the disagreement was, one was saying, I follow Paul, who's the writer of this letter, the pastor who uh, started the church there. The other one says, I follow Apollos. Apollos was one of the teachers of the church of Corinth. Remember, he was a Jew converted, debated with the Jews, publicly uh, shamed them, showed Christ to be the Messiah, and was trained up and filled with the Holy Ghost under Priscilla and Aquila. So he's probably the more outstanding one that's actually there. So some are saying, I'm with Paul, the guy who started the church. No, no, no. I'm with Apollos, the great preacher and scholar that's here. Somebody says, no, man, I'm with Peter. I've moved here from one of the churches that Peter has started, so my allegiance is always going to be with Peter. And then somebody else says, you know what, I'm just with Christ. And really, is the person saying, I follow Christ in the wrong? No, because shouldn't they all be saying they follow Christ? But the point that he makes here is that the one who is saying, I follow Christ, is doing it in still a divisive way. Their following Christ is like the person who doesn't go to church on Sunday because they just follow Christ. They don't have to do discipleship because they don't need Paul, a preacher. They just follow Christ. They don't need a pastor to teach them and to help them through their troubles. They know it all already because what they, there you go, that's the attitude that we see that's being used here because it's coupled together with the obvious dissension. But the point he brings up in 13 is that Christ should be the center. Is Christ divided? Of course he isn't. We're looking at Christ being compared to the body of Christ. Is my hand divided from my arm, my head from my body, my ears from my head? No. Is Christ divided the body? No. And what we call here with the question marks, what do we call this uh, when he begins to ask questions that he already knows the answer to, Jared? You've learned this before. A diatribe. Paul loved diatribes. He's asking questions that he doesn't want you to answer because you should already know better, but he still has to remind us. Is Paul, is, is Christ divided? Of course he's not. Did Paul be crucified for you? Of course he wasn't. Were you baptized into the name of Paul? Of course you weren't. Verse 14, I'm thankful that I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. The word baptize, baptizo, means to submerse in water. This is not a sprinkling, but this is a full admit, uh, dipping into water. As with Philip in the eunuch in the book of Acts, a full dipping into water. Paul says, I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. And so that you can't say I even uh, was all about trying to take charge over there and get you all to be with me. And then he says, but hold on. I forgot I also baptized Stephanus. Beyond that, he says, you know, I don't even remember if I baptized anyone else. I've just been casting out devils, shikaboomba. You know what I'm saying? You guys causing me trouble. I'm writing this letter at 3 in the morning. I wish I could get back to bed. He says, I don't even remember who else I baptized. Crispus and Gaius, we don't know too much about them, but we know that um, uh, Crispus, he was a leader in the church, uh, excuse me, the synagogue at Corinth as well. 
He probably comes from Stephanus's, uh, excuse me, Sothenus's congregation, and he was a convert to Christianity from Judaism, as well as um, Gaius. Gaius is simply known as a believer that was accept, who accepted Christianity, and since he's coupled together with Gaius, chances are is that he himself was also a Jew or a Jewish leader. The house of Stephanus, the brother here that's being mentioned, is simply a Christian that is here, and uh, he had a prominent role in the church because he's also mentioned again in the end of Corinthians chapter 16. He says, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and have devoted themselves to the service of the saints and so on and so forth. So we know that Stephanus is an elder, most likely church is meeting in his house. He was the first to be converted in a certain area, and he's a very important person to the growth of the churches in that area. So Paul says, hey, I don't remember baptizing anybody else. Now what does this show us? Right here at the very beginning, uh, well, it's qualified in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Gospel evangelion, preach to proclaim, to proclaim the good news of Jesus, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So what do we see in verse 17 that was being tapped on in verses 14 to 16 is that there is no such thing as baptismal regeneration which teaches you are saved when you're baptized. Some people think that unless you are baptized, you are not saved. The oneness Pentecostals like to then put speaking in tongues on that, baptized in Jesus' name, speak in tongues, now you're saved. There's others like the Church of Christ that say you believe in Christ, then you're baptized in water, then you're saved. Paul specifically says, I wasn't called to baptize, but I was called to preach the gospel. He differentiates. Salvation is not through the baptism and the washing. Salvation is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does everybody see that? And then the second thing that we see is that he's preaching the gospel not with human words, words of human wisdom. Would this mean that Paul would not take time to preach as I am preaching or teaching today or go to Bible college? Absolutely not. What he means here by words of human wisdom is that Paul lived in the time of the Greeks where philosophers like Plato and um, so many others, if you know one, just shout one out. Aristotle, Socrates, this, of course my mind just went blank, and uh, so many others of these that uh, I can't think of right now that were alive at his time. He is saying we don't come with those philosophies. Our message isn't come hear all of these philosophies then consider our thoughts and go home as they did on the Mars Hill in different places. No, what they would do is preach it as the truth. There is no discussion. Jesus Christ has been crucified, buried, and raised for your sin, and now he will set you free. Let's demonstrate it, casting out evil spirits, healing the sick, operating in spiritual gifts. Do you understand? Amen. So he says, I'm not coming to baptize in a religious sense. I'm coming to preach the gospel. Now you might say, well, how does that answer the argument previously mentioned? Well, let's go through it. He says there's divisions among you because people are not of the same mind. They don't agree. They have been divided, and they're not sharing the same thoughts together. How are they doing this? By claiming to follow each other, even trying to be super spiritual and say they follow Christ. He is now saying that they should follow Christ and not look to him as the source of their salvation because he hasn't even baptized many of them. 
does that mean they shouldn't follow him in this epistle? Because you could kind of see the smart aleck person here. Well, if I don't have to follow Paul, I don't need to follow 1 Corinthians then, right? Just throw it out. But that's not what he's saying. What he is saying is this argument is probably stemming from people who are actually saying you're not saved unless you're with Peter. You're not saved unless you're with Paul. You're not saved unless you're with Apollos. And you're not saved unless you're with Christ. And he says, ultimately, of course it's all about Christ. And you can be saved apart from that. And it doesn't matter who baptized you. You need to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it does answer that problem. Verse 18 and onward, as I finish out today in seven minutes by God's grace, which I thought I could get a break, but I'll just blame it on the lack of participation at the beginning of the chapel. So there went your break today next time. Just participate next time. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay, what is the message of the cross? He mentions it in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the tradition that's been handed down. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Everybody say that together. One, two, three. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Thank you. Why is it foolishness to those who are perishing? Because if you have not accepted the cross, hearing that a man 2,000 years ago for us or for them a few years ago died, was buried for your sins, does that do anything for you now? In your mind, if you're not believing it, does that do anything for you? So what? What does that do for me? That's foolish. I'll go to an AA meeting if I want to get off drugs and alcohol. I'll go see Dr. Phil to help get my marriage back on track. Even people today see the same thing. What's Jesus 2,000 years ago going to do for me? It seems foolish. But what they don't understand is that in the courts and heaven and the mindset of God is that that day sins were atoned for. Power was sent through that name. And all they have to do is believe, and then they see that power. Verse Uh, 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. So he is purposely, God is saying this, and this quotation right here, uh, this quotation at the end of verse 19 comes from Isaiah 29, 14. He says, therefore, once more I will astound those who ponder with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord. He keeps going on and on. Why is God purposely doing this? Because salvation will never be the work of the flesh. You are not saved by good works, lest any man will boast. All of us are saved by the grace of God. Who do we give the credit to? Jesus Christ. It's like a man drowning in the ocean. He's He's drowning. He has no hope. He looks all directions. He sees nothing but water. He sees nothing but the waves. He feels the wind, the battering of of the waves over his head. He's going up and down. It's a few moments before he dies. He's catching water into his lung. He's choking. And at that moment, he sees a Coast Guard person come down, being lowered from a, a helicopter. They grab him and lift him up. That is salvation. There is no way that that man can now get into that helicopter and say, Hey, man, did you see what I did out there? Did you see how I held on to it? Man, I take some credit. You know what? When they give you this, the Medal of Honor for that, I want to get some credit with you. What, what Paul is saying is 
The Corinthian people were just like the Romans of that day who loved Greek philosophy, who were proud of Greek thought and were proud of the education they had in this city. And they were saying that the smarter you are, the better you are, the better colleges you go to, like in our society, the more money you have, the more you look like Bill Gates, the more you operate like that, the better off you are in life. And God was saying through Paul, They have no idea. They're perishing, and when they laugh at our cross, they're actually fulfilling the prophecy of the Father who said that they will be destroyed in what they call wisdom, and they will be frustrated in their own intelligence. Verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? See, these were people of their day. Where are they? Where is your professor? Where is your scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this word. See, I told you the, the little hamburger, the, the little fluff, and then now here comes the rebuke, guys, and it's going to last all the way to the 16th chapter. So that's like a meat with a five-pound hamburger and a bun at the end. Are you all listening? So just chew on that for a while. He's basically saying to people, you're fools. Well, well, I get my advice from Oprah Winfrey. Well, I get my advice from Dr. Phil. You're a fool. Well, I think because I went to Harvard, I believe in evolution. You're a fool. I think because I follow Plato and I can explain things. You're a fool. He says, do you not understand that you are made foolish in God's eyes? Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased to the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So God purposely made it foolish. He did not come with a message that you would figure out in some math class or science class. He purposely came up with a message that you could not accept except by faith. Why has it got to be by faith? I want evidence. No, he didn't want it to be that way because if it was by evidence, the real smart people would take credit because they could figure it out the fastest. So he made it like this. Children are considered great. Servants are considered first. And that's how you get into the kingdom of God. Through the foolishness of God, your wisdom is crushed. God said there's no way for you to get into this salvation unless you proclaim your foolishness and say, I can't figure it out. No matter how wise I am, no matter how much I go to school, I can't figure it out. I need Jesus. Verse 22. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. So what did Jews want? They wanted another Moses. Do more signs. Split the Red Sea. Give us the Ten Commandments. Give us the manna. And what do Greeks want? They want the philosopher. They want the Plato. They want the Aristotles. They want the Socrates. They want the different philosophers that will convince them. And he says, no, we don't give them either for this. We give them Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And somebody might say, well, I thought the power of God was the miracles of God, not in this context. The power of God that he is demonstrating to them is not just the miracles because he says even that is not enough. The power of God is the gospel itself here. Look at it again. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the what? Power of God. So what is the power of God? One person is with me. One person. God help me today. The power of God is what? 
the message of the cross. Now keep going. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. According to verse 17, what has power and what won't Paul let it be emptied of? What is that? The cross of Christ. I'm sorry, guys. I just want to be very honest with you as a, as a pastor. I preached three times yesterday. I didn't have a good second service because of lack of participation. And today I feel like you guys have done the same thing. And I really do. I don't think you understand how hard it is to preach, to prepare. And I think you guys are being lazy in class today. You're not following the lecture. You deserve to do yourself better. And this chapel deserves to be better. Okay? And I rebuke you for that because you should be better. This is in the Bible college. You are smart enough to understand the things that I'm asking you. For you to remain silent when I ask you questions. Some of you don't even have your Bible in front of you. You're not even paying attention. And others of you are being confused because you're not following logic and you're not understanding what Paul is saying. And if I don't stop and rebuke you, you won't understand that this passage is what God had for you today in chapel. So shame on some of you. And for the rest of you, thank you. And I'm sorry you had to hear the rebuke for the others. But let us continue on. Verse 22, Jews demand miraculous signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but you preach Christ, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. Because why? They're not going to lay hands on the Jews and say, let's all get you healed and let me prove that's the gospel. No, what do you prove the gospel to? Uh, what's the power of the gospel to the Jew? The message of the cross. If I'm going to prove the power of God to a Jew, I'm going to show him the message of the cross. That is why when you follow Paul throughout his life, where does he always show up the first place in every city? He shows up at the synagogue because he wanted the Jews there to understand the message of the cross. And then he says, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greek, Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what is the central message of the cross of Christ? Christ himself. What is the central message of the cross of Christ? Thank you, Christ himself, because now Christ is the power of God. So when we say the message of the cross, are we pointing to a wooden beam? Are we pointing to a wooden cross, literally, that's made of wood like the Catholics venerate and, and have these uh, little pieces of it around that they, that they feel have come from the cross or the robe of, of Sharon or, you know, uh, the cloud of, what do they call this? Shroud, thank you. And, and they, uh, they want to have relics. Is this what the power of God is in? Is in a relic? No, it's actually in Christ who was on that cross. That's where the power comes from because the anointed one, the Son of God, he was put on that cross, and God's power was revealed there. Shame on us. Let me just rebuke all of us right here. Shame on us when the cross is not enough. When we have to put on this stage, Bozo the Clown, and have animal tricks like we're David Letterman on a talk show. Shame on preachers when the cross of Christ is not preached hard enough and, and, and with the power enough to see all the souls saved in the congregation. Do I have anything against illustrations, using technology, whoa, doing a couple little things with the light? No, but when we do harm to the body of Christ is when we preach the cross without its power. And the cross is looked at as that old thing, that thing from yesterday, that thing that we get bored of, that thing in a chapel that we can't even listen to for an hour or an hour and a half. Shame on us. The body of Christ was built through people hearing about the cross for hours. 
If there's not a place where I can't preach to you for, for a few hours on the things of God in the midst of a Bible college, where can you be preached to for a few hours? We have no idea what the church put. I, I mean, I show up in India. They're praying, clapping their hands at 7 in the morning. They'll stay there till 7 at night because that's church for them. And yet we get so discouraged. You know, shame on us when the cross of Christ is not enough. I love giving gifts. I love praying for, for uh, you know, for people. Do you, are you sick? Do you have a need? But let's lift up the cross of Christ. Let's show men, women, children their need of a Savior. You're a sinner without Christ. You're lost in your sins. The power of God is revealed in the Son of God bleeding and dying for you on this cross and then rising again on the third day. There is your salvation. Let our messages stand on the power of Christ. And then he says in verse um, 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So that means nothing we can do to figure it out will ever be figured out. And our strength only is, uh, uh, the way uh, look at it, unless our strength comes from God, our strength is nothing. Verse 26, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Now here's the encouraging part why I had to finish today. And just Nancy, you tell them I'm going to preach as long as I, because I'm tired, listen to me, I'm tired of breaking my word to you. I'll preach as long as I want to preach, okay? So just you tell whoever needs to know that. All right, thank you. That's the kind of mood I'm in today because I'm tired of playing around, and I'm not upset, with, and I'm not even going to mention what happened today with our brother, but I'm just telling you today, I'm not playing games with you in this Bible college. Do you understand? I could care. I'll, I'll shut down the whole thing, and you'll just listen to me for eight hours a day if you're called to be under this church like the Apostle Paul because I'm sick and tired of y'all going to class, and then you can't do things right. You can't live holy. You can't get your stuff in right. Some of you are wasting your money. You failed classes. You have to take it again. It took us four years for some of you to get your first graduating class. Others of you have dropped out, had to come back. And I'm not trying to shame you right now. I'm just trying to tell you, stop wasting time. This is the call of God. This is what people have to lay down their life for. And sitting in some class, if you're not getting it there, today you will get it from your professor, this pastor, who brought this Bible college here. Do you understand? Who has been in the ministry for 15 years. And I have seen what it takes out of people's lives because they don't understand the power of the cross. The power of the cross is stronger than your sin. The power of the cross is stronger than your stupidity, my stupidity. All the junk that we have in our heads, the cross is stronger than all of that. I'm tired of students failing classes, running off and hiding in your classes, not doing your work, all of these things. And then I have to sit back and and, and be subjected to some type of a schedule where I feel bad for teaching you the Bible. This is why you came here. Do you understand? Before SUM was here, Metro Praise was here. Do you understand that? If you have a problem with that, go to another church and do it their way. Do you understand? Because I came here to plant churches based on the power of God. I came here to raise up soldiers based on the power of God. And this to me convicts me for you, for me. I mean, I'm just looking at this going, we do not preach the cross anymore uh, even in some of our services, some of our messages, even with some of you in your life groups, I understand you're trying to please people, you're trying to get them in, evangelism, and we keep losing the cross of Christ. Discipleship, losing the cross of Christ. When somebody says to you, I don't want to be discipled anymore, 
They're not saying they don't want to be a part of Metro Praise. What they're saying is the cross of Christ has no power over my life anymore. Are we patient with those who stumble? Are we patient? Absolutely. God bless you. But here's the thing. Somebody needs to rise up and take the power of Christ. We're graduating some of you this year. Is it going to be a first that we lose some of our pastors as well now? Because it seems like every step of the way, we ordained some elders. Oh, we had to lose some elders. Oh, we started a Bible college. Now we had to lose somebody. Is that going to be the next step? We're going to graduate some, and then we're going to have to pull down some. We're going to have to put some people in front of the congregation and say, these were your pastors. These were people who were supposed to look out after you, but they've had affairs. They've lied. They've cheated. They've had alcohol problems. I just heard about another church where, where, where the youth pastor, he cheated on the wife with the worship pastor. The worship pastor's wife and the youth pastor had an affair. When will we say this is enough? When will we say it's the cross of Christ? Because if we cannot say that, then we're not ready for the next verses, which is meant to be encouraging, which I felt I would have gotten to 15 minutes ago if you would have put your head into this message, which is this. Brothers... In the midst of his rebuke, he refers to them again, Adelphoi. He says, think of what you were when you were called. He says, now that you realize you're causing divisions, you're hurting yourself, you're not living holy, you're not blameless, you're causing reproach, you're making us look bad in front of the world. He says, was Christ crucified for you to live like this? No. Is he trying to convince the Greeks through a wisdom? No. He's doing it through the power of Christ. Now look at yourself. Who were you when you were first called? Who were you? Were you wise then? going out to parties, puking into toilets, bowing down to the porcelain God, having sexual immorality, looking at... All of us were sinners. Remember who you were. Joe, preaching to myself. Joe, remember who you were November 5th, 1995. Remember, Corinthians, who you were the day you heard the gospel. Remember the first time you heard it. Were you full of divisions in your highfalutin mind back then? No, you weren't. You weren't wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world. He just called you a foolish thing. He called me a foolish thing. He said, but God chose the foolish things. Angels, I want to get a new preacher raised up to touch the nations. Which one do you want, God? Do you want this one over here at this college? Do you want this Franciscan monk? No, I want the one right over there snorting cocaine, doing drugs, having sexual immorality. I want that one. That one looks foolish. Yeah, that's the one I want. Why are we now trying to live it out on our own? You see, when you try to perform Christianity and ministry in your own strength. You're weak. I can't do ministry. I can't preach the gospel. I can't even pastor this church. I can't even form one word out of my mouth that Solomon said. I don't even know my left hand from my right. And yet there's a power of God within me. The 
cross of Christ is being revealed within me. And it comes through Christ himself. And he, Paul is saying, and he, and he says it himself later on, but right now he's looking at them. And he says, brothers, remember who you were when you were called. You weren't wise by human standards. You weren't influential. You weren't of noble birth. You were foolish, but God chose you to shame the wise. God chose the weak things. But pastor, I feel so weak. I feel like I have to sin sometimes. God chose you to be weak so that you would shame the strong, so that when you come before here, you you don't say, well, you know what, I quit smoking because I'm so disciplined. I quit cussing because I'm so disciplined. No, you would stand before here, and you'd have tears streaming down your face, and you would say, if it wasn't for God, I would still be in the gutter. If it wasn't for God, my life would be messed up. It was only by God and His grace, not my strength. That we would understand the power of God because he chose the lowly things of this world. See, you were lowly, despised. Some of us were even hated. Let's keep it real. A lot of us in the world didn't even have friends. And the things that are not, you were, how many even knew you? Some of you like Adam, you know, he's a youth pastor. Youth no, youth wouldn't even have known him. You're no Lady Gaga. You're no, you're no little way. No youth would have cared about you right now. You're no professional baseball player. You're no professional singer, musician. You're no wise speaker at a Bible, uh, you know, like Bart Ehrman earned your Ph.D. and now blaspheming against God. None of us here had an audience, especially me. And yet he chose those things that are lowly, despised, and that are not. Who was Joe Wyrostek before Christ? Nothing. Nothing. Well, Pastor, you don't understand. I had a business, and I, I looked good on the outside. I had, you know who you were to God? Nothing. You know who you were to this world? Even Bill Gates, nothing. Who was the richest man of the 1300s? Who was the richest man of the 1200s? Who was the richest man in 700 AD? They're forgotten. They're nothing. The glory of man is like the grass in the field. His, all of his riches are like the flower that buds. And when the sun comes out, they fade away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. He says, you're nothing without me. But what is the beauty? He chose us. Reinhard Bonnke, how do you get one million people saved at an altar call? They asked him, how do you get one million? He saw one million people in Africa, Nigeria, except Christ, 2.5 million in the audience. How do you see a million people come to an altar call? You make Jesus number one and get a whole bunch of zeros to follow. That's how you get a million people at an altar call. Make Jesus number one. Verse 29, so that no one may boast before him. Is Billy Graham going to boast before Christ? Am I going to boast before Christ? Are you going to boast? You know, people say, well, pastor, I got 500 people in my church. God is good. But I worked hard. God is good. But, Pastor, don't you know so-and-so, they've got 40,000, Young G. Cho, a million people in their church. God is good. No one will boast on Judgment Day. Billy Graham, Reinhard Bonnke, he himself knows that. That's why he teaches it. You know, good pastors understand as well. No one will boast. Verse 30, it is because of him that you are in Christ. Because of who? God the Father. 
Because God the Father, verse 27, chose you. It's because of the Father you're in Christ Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Who is God referring to there in John 3.16? The Father, half of you. Come on. Maybe somebody will get it before we end it today. Who is God referring to in John 3.16? The Father sent the Son. Where does salvation stem from? The Father. Because of him, you are in Christ. Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. Does that mean now we just walk around and say we're stupid and say I love Jesus? No, because now Christ has become for us wisdom from God. Where has our righteousness come from? Christ Jesus. Where has our holiness come from? Christ Jesus. Where has our redemption come from? Christ Jesus. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's stand up together today, please. Jesus, we thank you today for your word. I pray you forgive us for not giving our full attention today to the class, Father, and to chapel. I ask for your forgiveness on behalf of this congregation, that, Lord, they would repent, God, of their slothful ways that they would look even to the ant, Father God, who has no master over him but knows how to stay busy about his business, Father God. Lord, I pray today you'll forgive us for not relying upon the power of God and allowing some of our brothers to fall short of the call that they have upon their life. Lord, forgive us for not being their, their watcher. As Cain said about his brother Abel, am I my brother's keeper? And the obvious answer is yes. God, and I ask now that you forgive this congregation, even as their pastor, I speak on behalf of Metro Praise for this congregation, for us losing the power of the cross. That, God, we try to do it in our own strength, and even things like evangelism, even things like children's ministry, Royal Rangers, life groups, all of these things, youth group, that we know are good to do. God, we allow at times for the power of cross to be neglected in these services, for us to rely upon our methods, for us to be relying upon the gifts and the briberies that we give. Father, I pray as this congregation seeks you, you would draw us back to the power of the cross. And that, Lord, you would be lifted up in this city and around the nation so that none of us boast. Grow our ministries, the church here, all that you do here, not for our names to become big, not so people know Joe Irostic or Metro Praise or SUM. Let your name be glorified so that they may know Jesus Christ in the power of the cross. And God, we pray for the lost even among us today who say, show us signs and wonders to prove to us your God, just like the Jews did. Father, we pray that those people will be humbled by the power of the cross. A man, the Son of God, hanging on a tree for the redemption of their sins will bring them to their knees, O oh God. Not these miracles that they seek, though we know they're a part of our message, but not the message itself. 
And God, living in this society of atheistic thinkers and those who have turned their back on your knowledge, who claim that there is no God, who seek evolution as their way of explanation, and then they say to us, let us have an intellectual dialogue where you prove God to us. Lord, we pray in this culture that we would then preach to them as a child and say you are a bad sinner, but a good God died for you. This is the message. Repent and call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved let us not be ashamed of the message that Paul preached let us not be ashamed of the message that Sothosthenes preached and was beaten in the synagogue for let us not be divided a divided church against our leadership. God, you have called me to be the leader here and the leader over me to be Brother Anthony. God, I pledge my allegiance to serve him and follow him as he follows you. And I pray for that same heart to be towards my wife and I as we follow God. God, let it not be said of us as it was said from Chloe, that there are people divided among us. God, convict them of their divisions, their wrong thinking, their rebellion. Unify them, God. And I speak not only for our own church, Metro Praise, but I now speak for the churches that bear your name, S-U-M, where the cohorts are and the people who preach your word. God, let us not be divided against each other. One saying, I'm with Metro Praise, I'm with Faith World. Another one saying, I'm with Billy Graham or so on and so forth. God, let us all be under the apostles of leadership you've called us to be and to bless our brothers and sisters. As one of the disciples came to you and said, Jesus, I see another one casting out demons in your name but they are not with us what should i tell them and you said if they are not against us they are for us let him be let that be the heart that we have towards every church we hear preaching the gospel if they're for christ we are for them no division among us we think the same thing and we are unified together in one one heart jesus i thank you for today's chapel let next week's be better to us as we grow and mature in the things we learn today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can you bless the Lord for the word today? Amen.